Well, welcome back to Potter's Passages 006. We're covering today chapters 14 and 15, short selection. Um, and we're back with Mr. West Chance and Miss Sarah Miller. It's great to have you two back. Hey, good to be here. Hey, good evening. And so we were just talking before we got on. It's funny, there's so many things to say. On the one hand, there's a competing podcast with one of our friends called uh, named Mr. Oscar Ortiz, who recently... Uh, posted his materials online and a lot of people have been listening to that podcast so there might be a little bit of rivalry brewing between his and ours so they're totally different in their content that's the great men con uh podcast and this is the harry potter one but then also sarah and i were talking a little bit about where does this where does this podcast go after we finish because it looks like this is the penultimate that's her word not mine uh podcast for harry potter and the sorcerer's stone and so i suppose the first question is Y'all, y'all looking to finish this and do the second book, The Chamber of Secrets? Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, that was so easy. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. And so, so Sarah, uh, Sarah had, we were also talking about maybe even going through the traditional canon, not only the Harry Potter books and potentially even comparing movies at some point, depending on how, uh, how interweaving and interwoven we want to be but also going through the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit, which, and I know you're teaching the Hobbit right now through Signum University, Wes, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that, especially if we're all yeah. going to talk about it. So, I'd mm -hmm. love to hear about it. Yeah. yeah well, it's, a, it's a program they started last year. Uh, the university itself uh, came out of a professor I had at college uh, who taught Tolkien at the university level uh, and then was starting to get into podcasting and uh, found that that was... Uh, you know, just as rewarding and, and offered him a lot more freedom than teaching at the brick and mortar uh, classroom. So he went full time with that, uh, you know, like five or six years ago. I don't know. So he was kind of early into that that game um, of, of podcasting and he came at it from a more traditional angle. Uh, so he had that kind of background. Um, but otherwise, in, in what we're doing, he reads the uh the, the text closely in, in collaboration with a bunch of like really involved students uh, all around the world and they just have live discussions of it. It's, it's really cool. You guys should check it out. Um, what I do is, is geared towards kids uh, and that's their, their summer program. Um, like I said, started last year. Um, this is my first year teaching it uh, and I'm, you know, finding out a lot about the Hobbit as I go through it with this, uh, with this level of, uh, of care so it's, it's great i got you said i that. was just oh. looking it up wes and mm -hmm. like the the myth guard thing i feel like i've yeah. used a lot of his resources <laughs> in teaching in um in teaching fantasy um, in general and lord of the rings in specific yeah. um i feel like i've definitely used some of this <laughs> um it's, probably uncredited. He, he is the tolkien professor i mean that's that's what his original website was called, and the name has stuck. But his name Midgard, is Corey yeah. Olson. Yeah, yeah I've definitely used it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, excellent. So let's dive into this text. So our first chapter is about Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback. And well, what's interesting about this, I mean, just one aspect, of course, is that um, the the dragon gets bigger and bigger in Hagrid's hut as we go through this chapter, and uh, easier and easier to see and becomes more and more obvious and harder and harder to conceal. And it just strikes me, there's this story that Jordan B. Peterson tells. Um, it's a children's story, uh, which you can buy, called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon, where this, this small little dragon in a house keeps getting bigger and bigger, and this little child sees it and keeps addressing it, but uh, the child's mom keeps saying, there's no such thing as a dragon. So the dragon just gets bigger and bigger and eats the kid's soup, and then eventually takes the house away, which is some sort of metaphor for divorce. And uh, only, oh, only eventually gets small enough again once it's recognized for what it is. Mm. I thought, just because we were talking about the metagame between Albus Dumbledore and Voldemort a little bit yesterday, and you can please tell me if this is too much of a stretch. Where Norbert is released is at the top of the castle, the highest astronomy tower. And so it struck me that it's like the dragon, which is getting bigger or the symbol of the serpent or of evil is getting closer and closer to the top castle or is getting closer and closer to manifesting itself again, as if 
I know we see, and we see explicit signs in the next chapter where the three centaurs are capable of seeing Mars is very bright, uh, even though from earlier on, as well as Hermione, don't necessarily think that astronomy is a very uh, rigorous mm-hmm. art. But, um, but it, it, I wondered if that was like a foreshadowing uh, this 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 dragon that grows in the hut of Hagrid in this small terrestrial face. I'm starting to understand Hagrid is sort of a terrestrial version of Dumbledore. Like he's the mm-hmm. earthy god, the Hermes to the Zeus, or uh, the earthy form of the celestial one. But I just I wondered if because the Norbert chapter, in a way, even though it, it sets the action of seeing the forbidden store forest, is sort of self-contained. It is, yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah, it, it seems like uh, that that dragon book has got to be selling a lot of copies since Peterson started talking about it so much. Uh, and I don't know, maybe J.K. Rowling read it or or just had a similar idea, because, yeah, there, now you mention it. It's got a lot of overlap here. Um, the thing that struck me about it was that if if you're 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 right, that there's a kind of parallel between Hagrid and Dumbledore, which which seems to have something to it well then it's pointing out what dumbledore's weakness is right if hagrid's weakness in some sense reflects dumbledore's trust dumbledore is trust right and and loving something that that he loves regardless of how dangerous it is Uh, and puts a lot of people in danger including himself that he may or may not realize and be be okay with so yes and uh just to add to that i we also see a sort of traumatic moment with neville Again, I know we've been paying a special special attention to him, but it's an even worse moment by the fact that he doesn't, that that what happens to him is misrepresented to him to make it even more hurtful to him. He goes to warn Harry that Draco is is going to uh, trick him or is going to entrap him or is going to get uh, McGonagall, sorry, that he's going to tell Harry that Draco knows it and is going to do something in order to punish Harry, which will also hurt Gryffindor because they will lose points. But yeah. how McGonagall understands the situation because she never saw the dragon that was being um, sent away. Uh, she, she thinks that Neville was just tricked by Harry ch- attempting to trick Draco, which would mean that Harry tricked Neville. And so that uh, then like the hero figure that he looks up to, who's his friend, even he would be treating him uh, like Draco treats him. Um, which is all, all the sadder, I, I think. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough moment because, uh, you know, based on everything we've seen so far, you, you're going to expect Harry to come out with the truth there to, to spare his friend this pain, but he, uh, but he doesn't, right? He, he just uh, takes the punishment and um, that, that's a big shift in the, in the story. I think a big, a big turning point. I think that um, one thing that I, yeah, Wes, I like how you put that, that you expect Harry to uh, tell the truth to be kind to his friend Neville, who he's been, well, I don't know if they're friends, but um, this person that he's sort of looked out for for a while and he chooses to be selfish or at least to protect their larger mission and it to me it's like the the thing about the the dragon and um uh uh, all of these characters they really seem out of their depth like at at a variety of points and like when they're out of their depth they sort of revert to this kind of all of these things that that make them at their best selves who they who they you know they're they're the best version of themselves i mean like Hagrid's out of his depth with this dragon. Um, uh, Harry is out of his depth um, when he gets caught. They forget the um, the invisibility yes. cloak at the top of the of the tower. Like even Hermione, like the smartest of the smart little girls, like and boys for that matter, the smartest of the of the students. She's, you know, I really expected better from you. I expected you to have more sense. Mm-hmm. Was what McGonagall, McGonagall said. Like everybody's out of their depth even Malfoy is out of his depth he's like cowering behind this like gross like slobbering dog he's so terrified um that like when things grow so I mean maybe I don't know this story that Dr. Peterson talks about um I'm not as first in him but that like what happens when you are out of control um uh 
all of them seem really out of control. Well, yeah. So what's interesting about that, and it goes back to the the lecture I gave on the cover about the placement of Fluffy at the bottom of the castle and the discussion we've been having about the metagame, the game inside the game. And Ferenz brings this up, in fact, when he talks to Harry, right? He says, have you learned much up at the school? And Harry says, a bit. He says, well, a bit. That's something. And then he uses this Socratic line of questioning, right? He asks Harry three questions. He says, do you, do you know what unicorn blood is used for? And, and guides Harry. And, and he says, do you know what's in the castle? And uh, do you know what you can produce in the castle? And Harry comes to understand what the situation is through this questioning um from from him but but the idea seems to be that a true education is exposure to the unknown which forces you to adapt to a situation in order to um in order to um ingest the new information or behave in such a way as to uh be maximally successful um within the situation and so um and and so so, so that would be like, say, the true purpose of education, to expose people to things slightly behind, beyond their depth so that they constantly improve their uh, adaptive capacities. So they, they, they become problem solvers, as it were. Well, and, and I absolutely, I, I, I see that. And that actually gets back to this idea of like, we've been talking about like, why is, why, why is their education so much more dangerous than other than what we would imagine education in the primary world to be but but also like it seems like they're a little too out of their depth right i don't know well it's interesting because it, at the very least it really and it might have something to do with their perceptions as first years because there's so much out in front of them but i thought there was an interesting prefiguration or foreshadowing of umbridge's way of teaching as opposed to say lupin's yeah. where malfoy expects just to write lines and of course that's what umbridge makes harry do completely useless activity mm-hmm. that will teach them nothing whereas these students now they're going out to start to learn like a field lesson as it were um, um and so now they're being exposed to to un- the unknown in a way that tests their skills and and also shows their character because of course we see that thing is a coward uh draco is a coward and a trickster um we also see mm-hmm. uh, that harry's fairly brave and so Hmm. Uh, well, I, sorry, just to go back to one, one point you said about Hermione losing her sins. I, I just want to ask one question to y'all. What about that punishment by McGonagall of 50 points from every single mm. one of the Gryffindors? 20 points from Malfoy, but 50 points from each of the Gryffindors. What? I, I, when I saw that, I was, I thought to myself, well, cause so, so she earlier, like for like, she circumvented punishment to get Harry on the Quidditch team, right? Because she said, I, 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 I want to like, I want to wipe the smile off of Severus Snape's face. I can't for the life of me uh, manage or, or handle um, Slytherin winning the house cup again. But here she chooses, she chooses not just punishment, but almost a harsher extreme punishment of her own, her own students, like her own house. And I wonder if, if behind that wasn't sort of some of the, um, the classic mom mm. tactic, like I expected better from you. Like I expected this from, from Malfoy, but I didn't expect it from you. So the fact that you failed to live up to my expectations so much makes my punishment even and it, harsher. It does I, seem I, to, I, she does seem to differentiate her instruction, right? The reason she's disappointed for each of them is where each of them is weak. Longbottom, because you were easily deceived. Harry, because you didn't care yeah. enough about others and take your responsibility seriously to Gryffindor. Hermione, you're supposed to be the thinker. Um, and, and, and like, it's almost, I think it, it reminded me of that converse, that part of the conversation we had a couple, a couple um, sections ago where we talked about, well, what's, what's more useful to, like proper education is it mercy in which is what she shows him with um with the flying or is it like really adhering to the rules and i wonder if in in the back of her mind is it what's going to teach them how to be good if i bend the rules for them or if i'm really harsh and it it really does kind of seem to work 
for for Harry and Hermione who are both like, no, we're not going to get involved. We need to focus on our studies. Um, like it seems to have the effect of shame. I'm I'm like always kind of hesitant about how much we should wield that as a tool for um, uh, uh, behavior modification. I do think like a healthy measure of shame is really important, but like he's haunted by how much he lets down his own house. And that's because of what she says to him and how other people treat him. I, I, uh, it seems like in this case, that's the most effective punishment, no matter how, how unfair it seems. I don't know. Yeah. And it's, I, I think what I was trying to get towards earlier, but I just, I didn't, I just never finished it is that um, it's as if the world is becoming more and more real. We talk uh, and emotionally and experientially. Um, so we talked earlier about how things are, are different and the same. So even though you're at a school, the stairways change and there are ghosts flying around. And even though you have many different sorts of uh, classes, like you have to go do astronomy and stare at the stars and you have to go to the herbology gardens outside, you still have boring history classes with Mr. West Chance's Mr. Uh, Professor Benz, <laughs> where you just copy things down though with your, your quill. And perhaps you have a, yeah. a clever way of making your quill just auto go right rather than you writing it your, yourself. But um, now Harry, who first entered the magic world it, as pure celebrity, is now experiencing utter humiliation, not only in his own house, mm-hmm. but in front of Slytherin, who actively humiliate him, and also Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff hate him because they were hoping that Slytherin would finally lose the house cup after seven years. And so it, it, he's, he's now encountering danger out in the forbidden forest where he has to actually express his skill. And he's experiencing tremendous embarrassment, very similar probably to the embarrassment he would feel when he was at the same school as Dudley. And he would be wearing, mm. you know, too big a clothes and getting pushed around by Dudley. It's, it's almost as if this territory for him must feel extremely similar and in fact he tries to quit the quidditch team too he's so ashamed um i don't know yeah well wes what do you think about that as a teacher he's been totally humiliated and ashamed i mean what what is he to do in this situation and is it is he justified i i I would uh i had a thought about mcgonagall's punishment that uh that she she seems to be and i think she's punishing them of course uh, and Gryffindor, but it also seems like she's punishing herself in so doing, mm-hmm. right? And when you said Sarah, made mm-hmm. me think about that because she maybe she realizes that she was uh, too lenient before, and and it's backfired, and now she needs to, uh, you know, swing way too far the other way, and and she's not really um, sure where to where to land on on that uh, spectrum. Mm-hmm. I I've definitely been there, and I've been on the other side of it. <laughs> Of being the student who is is very ashamed by the by the punishment that they were not expecting mm-hmm. at all, right? Because they're they're in their moment of great elation when they forget the, the invisibility cloak up there. They they forget that key detail, and then it comes crashing down. I I definitely know how that feels. And to the to the thing about um, reality, the way that the um, the enchantments were de- are described by Hagrid, it's like they're their teachers, each of the classes that they take, each of those teachers has contributed to the enchantment surrounding the Sorcerer's Stone. So in a way, it's it's taking what had been just academic classes, and now it's it's real. Like you said, you know, this is uh, mm-hmm. this is deadly earnest to defend this uh, most precious of objects from uh, the most dangerous of, of wizards. Um, That's right. That's so interesting because um, also... Uh, the fact that they go out to the Forbidden Forest, which is forbidden to them explicitly by Dumbledore when they first start the term, is that they have to experience an exile after mm-hmm. their after their misbehavior. Mm-hmm. They must go out to the place which is unprotected, and they must do uh, penitence. And this sort of penitence is actually dangerous. They actually have to do a deed that is helpful to their society in order to return into it. It um it strikes me. It strikes me as a you know a fairly effective thing to do. I mean, of course, the Athenians they had the ten year ostracism, and uh, we we know some of our great writers like Dante uh, was in exile and wrote from exile. 
his entire life. And so it is, it's almost as if this moment is trying to give them perspective on that, which Hogwarts offers to them, which they have failed to understand by misobeying its rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Looks yeah, like no, we, yeah. we might've just lost Sarah, but go, go with that point And then we'll, we'll loop back. Yeah. Okay. Well, while you're trying to get her back on there, uh, the way that the, the punishment seems to fit, you know, in some sense of what they had been doing wrong, their transgression was going too high, um, sneaking around and uh, being out late at night. And in some ways, the punishment is kind of like the parallel to that, too, because they instead have to go down to the dark forest right where they aren't supposed to be. Um, it's night again. It's uh, it's sort of like ratcheting up the danger, right, because they're outside the castle now. But they are still they are still supervised. And, and Hagrid makes that pretty clear. Like, you're not actually in danger. It's just scary. You know, just um, send up sparks. But then we see right away that Hagrid doesn't know how dangerous it is. There's something there that he's not encountered before, and he knows it. And now it's now it's real. You know, again, the punishment was kind of safe, uh, kind of dangerous. But now now it's it's quite supremely and clearly outside the bounds. Um, yeah, and, and in the centaurs. About, yeah, and something interesting about that is that the most dangerous thing out in the wilderness is the most dangerous thing within the bounds of civilization. It's not a werewolf. It's not a centaur. It's not a giant spider or a basilisk. What is it? It's a man. It's a man possessed of an evil idea. Well, let's get Sarah back on here. All right. And so before we cut, cut off last time, and sorry about that to the listeners, we were talking about the Forbidden Forest. The scariest thing in the Forbidden Forest seems to be man possessed of an evil idea, just as the scariest thing in, say, the castle might be something like man. But um, then in the interim, we got to thinking a little bit about Ron. And so it seems like we're seeing Ron uh, miss out on some of the fun in these chapters um, in place of, and is replaced sort of by Hermione also, I guess, partly by Malfoy and Neville. What, what do y'all, what did y'all make of that exactly? I was taken aback. Like it took me a while to realize that Ron wasn't there. And then I was like, wait, where's Ron? And I had to go back and like, see, Oh yeah, that's right. He's like poisoned in the infirmary. Of course. Gotcha. Okay. So it's just like, it's like something where you, you get so used to having that, that thing there. And then when it's gone, you you suddenly appreciate it again, you know, something like that. Yeah. I'm I'm not really, I, I can't quite give an account for why, there is no Ron. I mean, I noticed it, but I wondered, like, what if his traits that we've seen thus far don't serve in this mm. moment? I mean, maybe it's his... I, I, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Um, he does seem to be more... not. He's not comfortable with dragons, but he seems to know a lot about dragons, so he's not as, not as terrified of them, perhaps. Um, I don't know. What do we know about Ron that makes well, him less useful for the so, story I well know. i just i want to try a really interesting attempt here so what poisons him and gets him into madame pomfrey's uh hospital is the fact that he's bitten by the dragon right and so mm-hmm. what starts to happen here is that harry starts to make a couple heroic differentiating moves from ron not only is he on the quidditch team as seeker which is a small different thing he's going to go out into the Forbidden Forest, ride on a centaur, which is apparently very rare, also see a dead unicorn, also see a vampire-like creature, um, and, and, and take the metal of himself in confronting the unknown. Ron will do that later, but what I'm wondering is perhaps whether the, the dragon biting Ron, and we'll see this later in the series, and perhaps we see its roots here as like the beginning of envy seeping in on him. Mm-hmm. The difference between the choices the hero makes and is ultimately successful with, and those who are near to the hero but are not ultimately uh, as heroic or as successful, like the difference between Achilles and Patroclus um, or something like that, yeah. No, that, that seems right. I mean, the, the, the symbol of the serpent right biting him, that, that, that definitely rings true. Um, and I, I think... N- in terms of like the narrative economy of it, like Sarah, you're talking about like, why doesn't he fit in the story here? Like he might just literally not fit, you know, <laughs> like there's enough, there's enough characters there and to have Ron along mm. would, would upset the symmetry of it. Well, 
all right, so let's have like this one bad thing happen to him. So these other bad things can happen to them. And then they're all kind of down in, in their various ways. And then they've got to rebuild, you know. Can I ask it? This might be totally pushing us off track, but I have to say that like when they were in the Forbidden Forest, as I understood it, the reason Hermione and Harry have detention um, is because they tried to do something to save their friend Hagrid. Yes. And I just find it funny that they serve detention with Hagrid, like, because they were doing something to save him. Yeah, well, it makes perfect um, sense, too. Again, like, the meta story, like, they did the thing that is most right, but the institution that protects right still punish them for going against the rules of it. And so they then bond together more and pursue that which is dangerous together, showing, I think, uh, that what they did was ultimately correct uh, because they're, mm-hmm. they're actually even literally physically pushed closer together because of that, because of that event. Um, it, it's as if they worked through their first fight as a, a group of friends or something like that. Um, uh, like, because, because, you know, the dragon is small, but then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and gets, starts to get between them all and even bites Ron. And then he has to lie to Madame Pomfrey and risk his health for, sometime um i don't know i don't know i'm just mm. well, no. well yeah yeah the, the other side of that i think like i've been trying to kind of harp on a little bit like malfoy's fascination with yeah. this group of friends comes to the fore again because he's like spying yeah. on them and trying yeah. to like listen what you know eavesdrop and peek through the windows and he's just like so desperate to you know like break into this little friend group and it's just so sad do you think oh my god (laughs) don't pity that little brat like um mercy mercy or fairness i see where sarah falls on this with malfoy (laughs) are you do you think do you think that that his like constant following them is is like rooted in some in in jealousy over their closeness because i think that's really interesting if it is i mean it's kind of like armchair psychology but i mean what what if he just what what if he just wants a real friend like i I, um, I think that's part of it because if this he's in slytherin and is also very wealthy then part of what he manifests is like the the rigid nature of tradition and so if you think about crab and goyle as also images of like columns of tradition are they very interesting mm -hmm. they have much personality are they doing new things it's like it's like the golden snitch perpetually falls, follows around Harry's group because they're always up to no good. They're always doing something different from everybody else. There's always some information embedded in their actions that is not embedded in everybody else's mm. actions. It's almost like Fred and George also have that going on, but nobody, nobody else is allowed to do what Fred and George do. Only they can get it. sounds like somebody's pulling yeah. the game, by the way, um, which is an interesting sound. Um, oh, sorry. But um, but uh, that Malfoy also is attracted to that which is attractive in them, not just Neville, not just Malfoy. Yeah. So, Wes, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, what is it that these 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 kids embody with each other that um, does make them worthy of being noticed? Um, well, uh, I mean, it's kind of like the fascination of Harry Potter, right? Like from the start, he's he's special. And even the centaur notices it, right? He's like, oh, like, this is Harry Potter. The normal rules, uh, you've got to kind of bend them for, for this guy. So um, that that's like one of the more, yeah, like you point out, that's one of the more exceptional things that, that sets Harry apart here um, in, in the little episode in the, in, the, in the Forbidden Forest where he doesn't even know what's going on. You know, again, he's sort of the passive... Uh, like locus of this amazing thing happening, which is beyond his comprehension at this point. Yeah. Well, hmm. let me, let me just change gears really quickly and talk about the centaurs. Are y'all interested in those? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, so I just want to throw a couple classical illusions down for centaurs. So there are three major stories that should be in our mind when we think about centaurs. One, which is the most famous in all ancient history is about the wedding of the Lapiths, which the centaurs were, were invited to and then they attempted to abduct and rape the uh the bride 
after getting drunk. And so they're, they're symbols of licentiousness in some ways. And there, uh, the, sec- mm. the second most famous centaur was a centaur named Nessus, whom was killed by Hercules, Heracles, when Nessus attempted to steal the wife of Hercules, or the girlfriend at that time. I believe it was a Megara, but it might have been Dea Anera. I think it was Megara, though. I'm fairly certain. Um, and Nessus actually ultimately leads to Heracles dying because he was wearing a sweater that he said had a love potion on it, but actually it had hydro blood oozed on it from Heracles's um, arrow, which Megara then gave to Heracles to maintain his love, but ended up just uh, burning his flesh and ending up killing him. So terrible. But the third one is a centaur named Chiron, who's very different from any of the other centaurs. He was known to be uh, Achilles's, Achilles's, um teacher, which is what the uh, uh, Phil from the, the Disney movie Hercules is supposed to represent, even though he's a satyr and not a centaur. They got many things wrong. Um, <laughs> and um, Well, his girlfriend's name is Megara that, in the movie. That, 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 that they did get right. That they nailed. Um, and uh, so... And, and and the fact that they had a, a Greek god Hades constantly using like Yiddish and Hebrew words like Mashugana things like that I thought was also very <laughs> Hollywood and funny. Um, but um, so the difference between Chiron and all the other centaurs is that rather than being unruly and drunken and being sort of a symbol of bestiality overcoming one's one's rational intellect or consciousness is that he teaches the arts to to mm. to Achilles. and so it's. He teaches him to hunt. He teaches him to play music. He teaches him to speak. And he teaches him to sing. And so it's as if one is cultivated by one's own instincts, or the ultimate instinct is to cultivate one's instincts into a harmony. And so no, that's good. What, what Harry runs into out here in these centaurs, and we see the Bane figure, who's like a Nessus, right? Who's violent. And we see Chiron mm-hmm. and Nessus both down in the inferno amongst the violent. Um, I was just going to say, I feel like I know these names from Canto 12 and like the river of boiling blood. But. Yes. Yes. They are there. They're there amongst the violent. And the idea is that their, their very nature is violence because two natures coming together, but how that might right. apply to Harry. And again, the education he's receiving again, in this unknown is that he is allowing his instincts. And this is something that's actually mentioned. When he's alone with Hermione, he can hear sharper. He can see clearer. He ha- he's, he's using his wits. And so when he runs into this Chiron-like uh, centaur who guides him through questioning, it's as if his instincts here are guiding him to the appropriate action in the situation. It's as if he's learning to rely on his instincts rather than just what he le- learns in books, which also seems to be the thing that he can do better than Hermione as evidenced through his Quidditch and broomstick prowess. Um, yeah. I, I got to throw out before yeah. we go too far from the the illusions. Uh, I think the ones in Lewis, like the Narnia books, are probably yes. the more the more like immediate um, reference that because because of the because of the astrology thing. Uh, isn't that like part, mm, part of what yeah. as his centaurs do? I don't remember those books that well now, uh, but I know that they're in there, and I know that. Well, Lewis was, Lewis was, um, I mean, he was a medievalist. He was obsessed and, and an intellectual, in fact, like a, you know, a scholar of medieval literature and medieval philosophy and theology. And there's a really persuasive argument um, written by, um, oh God, I'm going to forget his name, but it's called C.S. Lewis and the Planets. Um, and uh, it's, it's basically this argument that, um, you know, there's, there's this, there's always been sort of a way, like an attempt to kind of um, connect the, each of the Lewis stories, each of the Narnia installments with um, some element of the Bible. They're so overtly Christian in some ways, but, but um, this, this, this person, this professor, I heard him speak at the university of Chicago um, wrote a book called Planet Narnia and um, it's named, oh, Michael Ward. I just Googled it, Michael Ward. Um, and he writes about how um, the different planets uh, affect kind of like the ambiance of each story more than, more than, um, uh, 
you know, Aslan being the Jesus figure in obviously in the in the chronic in uh, the land, the witch and the wardrobe that's visible, but that not every not every Narnia story is representative of a biblical story. It's like the it's like a um, that that the Prince Caspian, for example, represents the 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 Mars quality of God and uh, the Lion, the witch in the wardrobe um, uh, represents the magnanimity, the, the Jupiter yes. quality of God yes. that like this, this medieval understanding of this medieval spirituality that was fused with Christianity in like the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s saw these planetary elements in the one Christian God. I, uh, and that Lewis wrote these stories to kind of amplify that, that that dimension yeah i guess and I, and of, I definitely i definitely want to address the idea too that that is part of the as the imprecision of astronomy is making connections mm-hmm. between the stars in an intuitive rather than a rational way and i want to talk a little bit about what mars means in the ptolemaic dantist system because maybe maybe we mm-hmm. see what harry's future is through this um but but uh, Wes, why were you asking about the more immediate predecessor of the centaur? Is there a, is there a marked difference in Lewis's centaur from the Nessus or the Chiron figures? Um, uh, I don't I don't think I wanted to say more than just they're also there and mm-hmm. they look at stars and okay. have stuff to do with prophecy. Yeah, that's about good, it. Good, good, good. Okay, so so one so in Dante's Paradiso, I know you both know this text. Um, the, the sphere of Mars is the sphere of holy warriors, largely Mm. crusaders. And so something interesting we've been talking about is the battle between good or God, Albus Dumbledore, the white one, or that which gives light, that which exposes, and he who must not be named, whose even name is hidden, right? The dark one, uh, Voldemort. And so it makes Mm. me wonder whether Mars is bright tonight, A, is supposed to indicate that a holy warrior is coming to be or is going to really shine on this night, or B, whether the aspect of Mars as uh, Aries, as the god of violence and, um, and, uh, and, and of physical aggression, whether Mars is bright precisely because something just so atrocious and violent against nature is being done of killing something pure. Uh, a unicorn. And the next question would be, do you think the killing of something pure is part of uh, Harry's education where he is himself learn- losing his naive innocence or purity in the magical world in the face of actual, of seeing actual evil outside the walls of Hogwarts in the forest? He is now uh, not poisoned but um, uh, or, or even traumatized but uh, his illusions that the magical world is, is pure and good disappear a, a, as well. Um, so those are the three things I was wondering. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, when I saw the repetition of the Mars is bright tonight, I Googled a little bit of the, you know, what could this possibly mean? And, you know, the Reddit boards were definitely full of ideas. Um, but um I I guess I feel like on the one hand I think it's kind of early in the series to see this um that like to see this great big clash of good versus I mean of of the god figure versus the 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 evil and the embodiment of evil I mean there's so many in there's so many moments in the, what we read for today that to me foreshadowed other moments in the story just like references in the entire like the uh, hairy spear of werewolves to me references um, ironically his attachment to Lupin um, his, you know um, they mentioned Dittany which is something that um, is necessary for um, uh, saving Ron from you know permanent damage um right and i'm not suggesting it's fully hashed out yet but that it, yeah if it, yeah if it is an ongoing battle throughout the entire series then it is already happening in small ways i um, yeah i see it as i see it as figuring this like as um adding to this sense that like great violence is happening or about to happen um and i i 
I guess I read it as more, more tied to what was going on in the forest. Um, but also, you know, now that I say that, like, yeah, and I think that's a level of analysis. Now that I say that, I think the centaurs, I mean, they're, they're when, um, what's his name? I think it's either Bane or is it, well, it's it's the one who says, uh, no, I guess it's Bane. He says, he says, he says, we are sworn not to set ourselves against the heavens. Have we not read what is to come in the movements of the planets? And that's when he sees, he sees Ferenz carrying Harry, um, which I think is like, that's another thing that we haven't yet talked about, which is like this intervention of fate versus choice. Um, but, but may, maybe it is that the centaurs have this knowledge of what's to come in the, in the next seven books. Um, I don't know. And per, I mean, per your other question of, you know, is it, is it a sin? Really? Is it such a crime to destroy something so innocent? It reminded me very much of that, that quote from um, Atticus Finch. I don't know if you guys read To Kill a Mockingbird when you were young, but um, where he, he talks about, you know, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird, which um, uh, is where obviously the title of the book comes from, but it's because mockingbirds do nothing but sing. Mm-hmm. Um, like they don't do one thing, but make music for music for us to enjoy, sing their hearts out for us. That's why it's a sin to kill them. That like, uh, it it just really reminded me of that quote. And I think for most modern readers in 1999, who have all read To Kill a Mockingbird, that's something that they would all that they would all remember certainly. Yeah, well, it does. It seems to place it with that that language of innocence place it within a a big you know conversation that definitely includes the Mm -hmm. likes of lewis you know as much as there's also the classical references that that's you know starting to come to the fore more and what you said about uh, destiny and morality and how those things interact the centaurs of course are are interesting in that they're they're not human and they have a totally different Mm -hmm. approach to uh they're 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 striving to be uh, objective in their in their um, view of events uh, and, and they like to really distinguish themselves from humans in that way, it seems like. So, so as far as in what sense they um, are foretelling the remainder of the books. Yeah. That it does set up these last chapters do set up a lot of, a lot of elements that uh, should kind of like spark our interest to, to keep going with the series and see how it develops. Yeah. Mm. Alex, what do you think? Do you think, how would you answer your own questions? Well, so, I mean, if I just focus on one part of the question, I do think what we see here is a necessary loss of Harry's innocence in order to face evil at the end of the book for the first time. And because he's, he's been wrong constantly about the source of evil, right? He thinks it's Sid Snape. Right. He thinks it's Draco. And he continues to conclude that it must be Snape. He continues to come to the wrong conclusion. And uh, even in the wake of feeling his his, uh, scar burn for the second time in the presence of this this hooded figure, this masked figure, uh, this figure whose whose head is hooded in the same way that you or he who must not be named, uh, name is hooded uh, or hidden. And so what, what what I think is is happening here is what has to happen to so in milton's paradise lost um satan can sneak into eden because he tricks an angel named uriel uh by by transfiguring himself and changing how he looks and uriel has never experienced a lie or a liar before so he is incapable of dealing with the figure of evil and so what it seems to suggest to me is that part of a good education is exposing somebody, at least in a symbolic way, to evil so that when they face it in the world, when they face malevolence in the world, they aren't shattered by it or they have some defense against the dark arts against it, which I think is also part of the why Quirrell is the defense against the dark arts teacher because he gives the ultimate final exam, right? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> defeat the evil inside of me. Uh, <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah, but so that, that would be my response to that, that I think that it's a necessary loss of innocence and exposure to evil in order to face evil when it manifests in front of Harry, which it will at the end of the book. Uh, and then over and over. So are you, saying, are you saying that he has to see this dead 
this unicorn slaughtered and he has to see someone that like maybe his breaking of the rules such that he gets detention. Yes. Ends up being a Felix you, culpa because he sees something that even yeah. Hagrid has never seen. This is not a normal thing to see at all. Right. Um, and, and then he rides on this, 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 uh, this forens, this, this, um, the centaur, which is not allowed. He's not a common mule as Bane says. And then forens, you know, jumps at him and says, do you know who this is? This is Harry Potter. You know, sort of like, you know, this is Jesus or something like that. Um, well, yeah. it, well, I was going to say like, then that, I mean, getting back to why McGonagall gave them such stiff punishments hmm. and how, and how Harry and Hermione seem to do what's right, regardless of the, of the rules or perhaps what's the, perhaps the consequence or maybe even the risk that, I mean, that, that opens up another question of like, um, like what, what's the, what's the moral argument through that then if, if this transgression leads to this, leads to this experience of detention, which leads to this um, discovery for him, this discovery of something horrific, which ultimately is, is a way for him to eventually defeat or face evil then if it if it traces back to this breaking of some human rule, that seems important. Yeah, um, no, I, right. In, in understanding the morality being, oh, yeah. like perpetuated, and I, I that like you do what's right regardless of whether or not it's that that maybe their courage is about is about figuring out what rules to break. Yes, and it even seems it even seems as if getting in trouble teaches you more and staying safe and i just i kind of want to shoot this question at west just because west i know you just finished maps of meaning and writing a review on it and does this does that does how does sarah's articulation of how she just explained it ring any bells to you i i know i i think of a particular story that peterson has great familiarity with that involves a felix culpa like this that a breaking of the the objective rules leads to a betterment of the human situation in some way or the other <laughs> No, I, well, actually, I was just going to talk about the way that um, this hooded figure uh, is breaking the rule and how he has this strategy um, in doing so. Whereas when they broke the rule, they didn't have the same kind of overarching strategy. Although the way that Sarah's describing it, it's it's like you can sort of understand it that way. Like they're, they're placing these values in a hierarchy and they're they're going after the higher values and at the cost of breaking the lower ones. But it's somehow very different from the way that Voldemort kills the unicorn yeah. so that he can stay alive long enough to go ahead and try to get the sorcerer's stone. Like there's there's some kind of connection there, but it it looks awfully different when you when you look when you say it that way. Well, I would uh, say yeah. Yeah, I would say, well, the connection I see with how she formulated it is it, it reminds one of the fall that in, in breaking one rule, so so there's a rule laid down, don't eat from the apple of wisdom or the, you know, the pomegranate of wisdom, depending on how persnickety you are. And, uh, mm. uh, but they don't follow that rule in order to develop the logos or consciousness or self-consciousness. And so the idea seems to be, well, even though that was bad, because now you experience suffering and childbirth and work and all of that, you now can make your own free choices. Free will now exists in, in the world. And so you're punished by that which you've done through these consequences, you're also capable of achieving your own reward through making your own choices in the world. And so sort of a Jungian idea on that is that that's a Felix Culpa as well, is that they didn't mean to do what they did. And, uh, and I see what you're saying, that Voldemort, like, like sort of the dark side Sith characters, he, is, uh, he has a plan. He intends to consciously do harm, whereas these characters, Hermione and Harry, they just sort of, accidentally did even though they did plan to do what they did they it was misrepresented as bad to mcgonagall um he he's he's playing like a very high stakes game drink some of this this unicorn blood and be cursed until right. you can get the uh the sorcerer's stone meaning at least to, to harry at this point that snape knows all that he needs to know in order to get to uh the sorcerer's stone even though it will be quirrell it will lead to the same actions by Harry and so yeah. I mean yeah I mean I think well so a part of the I don't I again like I've not read Maps of Meaning don't know Jordan Peter Peterson beyond the Joe Rogan podcast I listen to <laughs> <laughs> but like um, 
part of the Felix culpa is not just that you get, I mean, this is perhaps my Catholic, my, my 20 years of Catholic education, but um, (laughs) that it's not just the, uh, like the consciousness that you get of you one's own self, but theologically the Felix culpa, the, the error of Adam and of Eve is what allows for the redemption of Christ. That's right. It drives them into life. Yeah. And like, and it, 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 um, it makes necessary and there, and, and the, the incarnation and then the incarnation makes, makes the, uh, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection possible. And all of that's, it's all, it all hinges oddly enough on this error on this happy fault, like happy, happy mistake. Um, but to me, I think what the, what the, the redemption of Christ and (laughs) not to like, this seems like kind of a long, like a huge stretch, but what, what, what differentiates to me, what like the Felix culpa, shall we say of Harry and Hermione breaking the rule and Voldemort transgressing a rule or a a custom or a, a, a taboo, shall we say, is that one is, one is aimed principally Hermione and Harry's is aimed at, at like, what's good for the community and, and keeping people together and making sure Hagrid doesn't get fired for having a dragon. And like, it's, it's like, it's, it's, they're trying, they're attempting to, to do something that knits together a diverse community of people. Because I think like behind all of this is, it's hard for me to forget Voldemort's demands for purity, right? Like his, his enthusiasm for a, a homogeneity of the wizarding world that that dominates the muggles and dominates the 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 mixed and it's hard for me to separate that from like some of say like nazi ideology right so so they transgress all kinds of taboos right right yeah like they transgress all kinds of taboos but that doesn't make it okay it's it's driven at division it's driven at at like a at like a at like a um at these at a, and at a world organized in a, in a way that some people are at the top and they are above you and some people are at the bottom and they're below you. And there's something about the fact to me that Harry, Hermione and Hagrid are all like in the forest together. Some of them are serving detention. One of them is monitoring their detention, but that they earned detention trying to do something good for the person who is monitoring them. Like it just seems like they they were aimed, they, they broke a rule aimed at a community of diverse, diverse creatures and beings being in harmony. And, and Voldemort breaks a rule with the goal of, of being over people. Right. And I, that I, I think is what separates them. I think the fundamental difference is that they break an institutional rule, whereas Voldemort here breaks a law of nature. Um, yes, that's another. That's yeah. another great example. Yeah, I think, yes. I think that's a great, they follow the much law. better way of formulating. Well, I think you put it. Yeah, but I just got. I started getting the uh, the essence of it out of there. But yeah, no, but yeah. So they break an institutional rule, but they maintain the law of friendship and getting your boy, your friends back. Whereas Voldemort is, well, look at. I mean, just look at the situation. He's using the body of somebody else, and then. Already, so he's already utilizing somebody, not in a friendship way, not in a cooperative way, in a dominating way, like you were saying. And then he's killing something pure, so that's additional cost and use of something, not 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 mutually beneficial. And uh, and so, well, I guess that's about as far as I can go with the thought at that point. But he does seem to have a di- totally different method by which he goes about doing that, which he does. And perhaps we'll get into the psychology. And uh, the symbology of evil through his figure and how he develops, because he does have a long sort of uh, developmental process of getting back to yeah. form. That's sort of like you know what Sauron never does in the Lord of the Rings. And so, I don't know. That was very powerful, Wes. What were you thinking on that? Um, no, I just uh, I I think that there's a lot of interpretive wiggle room with the whole concept of the fortunate or happy fall the Felix mm-hmm. Coppola thing there I think you guys kind of covered sort of the the two extremes pretty pretty well and and I think what's what's interesting about this story is that um, as we get towards the end of book one 
we are sort of quite kind of suddenly, I, I thought, you know, confronted with um, this, this sort of heavier um, thematic content. Whereas for quite a while in the story, it's just like, okay, like this is fun and interesting and there's like new stuff and it's all very magical. And then, then, you know, unicorn blood, like, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. And screen. Yeah. So, hmm. Well, you know, what that makes me wonder is a really important question, Wes, which we didn't have a chance to ask you last time, but what, um, but Sarah and I answered, and um, there's a bit of a tangent. If you were to look in the mirror of Erised, Wes, what, what would you see? <laughs> I guess I'd see the thing that I, at this point, what I most want I think is like Harry uh, family. And so that's, I, I think I'd fall more on his end of it than the, the Ron, like the self aggrandizing and um, uh, what exact form that would take is locked deeply in my subconscious where it should stay, I guess. But well, here's um, my one question about like that. that, because I know you just wrote that review of Peterson is that I was listening to him today and in chapter four, he talks about the difference between a home to a child and a home to an adult man that the home to a child is that place that is provided for one. Whereas one is the figure of a father. The home is the place that one is responsible for that one helps to provide. And if you were to look in the mirror now at this point, would there be, would you be now that figure or coming to be that figure or? Yeah. I mean, not? <laughs> I, I, well, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm, Pretty, I'm pretty sure the the former, yeah. The the thing about the uh, answer that Dumbledore gives Harry, though, like it seems suitable to me that the the way that you answer that question best is with the answer suited to the person you're speaking to, mm. right? And so, if a child asks you that question, then you tell them something that's sort of like a, a fitting answer for for the way that they see you, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna I want some woolen socks oh, and not books all the time. So in um, his his teaching aspect and so in your teaching aspect too he's guiding our desire just as you might be guiding our desire through your response that and and the sense of like you don't shatter the sense of of your um the image that that person has of you as as the as the, the figure that knows a lot of stuff right and like has the answers um and i think that that's brought back around here too because the um the invisibility cloak is just forgotten yes. like for pages and pages. And then there it is at, just, in, just case. in case. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. Okay. So that's a very good answer, but I think we have one other very important question that we have to ask. And this one falls to you, Sarah. Ha have you, has your heart decided? Oh, you man. Are Hufflepuff or Gryffindor. This has been, I, I know very much on your mind. I mean, well, if I can be honest, it, it kind of hasn't, totally been on my mind um uh i'm like i'm dealing with a lot of other like boring stuff like moving um mm. um i think my heart has settled on um i think my heart has settled on gryffindor mostly because I, uh, yeah i just don't think i'm nice enough to be in hufflepuff like I just I'm really not I I, I yeah I just th I think I yeah. think I'm yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. a little too competitive um I I guess maybe I'm just a little yeah I I I've been thinking a lot about like what my friend Allison and I were just talking about like the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and all these other personality tests in the primary world and like I'm wondering you know what's the relationship between those stuff and 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 the characters in harry potter that definitely exists by the way like some some buzzfeed buzzfeed article like yeah, that yeah. pairs all the myers-briggs qualities to we'll have characters to in harry five, potter. which is statistically yeah. borne out we'll have to get you that <laughs> and do that with them okay so but yeah. but I, I think i think i think i've settled on on gryffindor mostly because the more i read the more i i, I don't think i'm like a harry version of Gryffindor and I, I don't really think I'm even like a Ron version of Gryffindor though maybe I maybe that's why I don't like him is because I'm more, <laughs> <laughs> more like him than I want to admit but but you see like Neville who really doesn't seem to have some of like the 
like the traditional version of courage that uh, or nerve um, that that the Sorting Hat speaks of. And he's still in Gryffindor. And, you know, Hermione seems like she could easily do well in Ravenclaw, but but she's still there as well. So that there's like this mystery to it that like. I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm friendly enough ish, but like, I'm, I'm not, um, I think my, I think I'm more interested in like the pursuit of things and, um, uh, it like, uh, exploration. I love to travel and see new things. And I, I see that kind of as less of a competition with other people and more like a competition with myself. I feel like I'm constantly in that in that world of how can I, how can I one up something from my past? Um, and that, that seems to be like kind of Gryffindor-esque. Um, I can just imagine I, Hufflepuff Wes sitting in his chair right now, petting a cat, smelling like some bacon and being in heaven. Cats, okay. Time out. Cats are gross. Cats are not okay. <laughs> oh, wow. So maybe <laughs> Wow. That inherently makes me not not a Hufflepuff. I do yeah. love baking. I love baking. So maybe Hufflepuff would be like, All maybe right. I'd be um, able to like, be, you know, overtures to the Hufflepuff. But okay. I think I've settled on Gryffindor. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it sounds, yeah, no, the desire for one-upping and the not ne- necessarily needing food smells near yourself at all times. No. Well, no, uh, I don't. Also, I know that you just experienced something of a small tragedy and we wanted to do a small reading about that. Did you want to do that next time afterwards? Um, yeah. yeah, I think maybe doing it next time would be good. Tomorrow's the funeral and um, I'll be, I'll be, yeah, maybe next time. Yeah, and so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. And, and yeah. well, we'll certainly be talking about that some in book four, which it looks like we're penciling in to do. And so, yeah, well, that's, yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, any, any concluding thoughts? From US or you, Sarah? I just, I think, um, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm still really intrigued by the whole, by like the dissension among the ranks of the centaurs. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah, uh, okay. I know we talked, we talked about them, like what they might represent mythologically, but you know, um, what do you do if you know something? Yeah, yeah, perhaps Ferenz is like Harry when he sees that something yeah. could be wrong in the interpretation. He takes a stand and makes maybe he too is breaking a rule based on seeing a greater truth. Yes, like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Wes? like and, and yeah, like no, where's yeah, where's your moral? The, like it's um, when Bane says, you know, have we not sworn ourselves not to set ourselves against the heavens? Have we not read what is to come? Like, are they abdicating moral responsibility by saying, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Like, this is what will happen. Right. So we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to choose to be bystanders because this is the, this is the arc of the universe. And this is, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the elves, quite <laughs> frankly, yes. in Lord of the Rings that like, who are really resistant to give advice and to get involved. Um, uh, and and it's it's the elves of Mirkwood, like Legolas, who are far more active than the elves of than the high elves, you know, who, who, who just want yes. who who just want to go west and get the hell out of there. Um, and and like, uh, I, I don't know, I, I have a problem with that. Um, yeah. I think that oh, that's yeah. I think that I find you that morally. Like <laughs> <laughs> I I, <laughs> I have a problem with their with Bane and Ronan's morality. Well, uh, perfect. And Wes? Yeah. No, yeah, that's that was the the main thing I was interested in. I think was the uh, the combination of the unicorn and the and the centaurs here. And I think we got a good chance to mm. talk about those things. So you know, yeah. you know, and it, yeah, something interesting. I I'm just going to mention this very quickly is that um the can <laughs> another hybrid creature we see in Dante in the Purgatorio that represents the Christ figure is a griffin, which is mm. half mm-hmm. lion and half eagle both regal creatures and so so you know these hybrid creatures being in there representing you know this you know this instinctual thing or this this act of violence against nature but also this sort of um, connection of the earthly and the celestial is uh, in an embodiment is very interesting 
Very interesting. We're in a in a chapter where the road or where the rubber seems to hit the pavement. Can um, I can yeah. I throw out oh, one, yeah, yeah, one yeah. final thing? Is that possibly why Ron is not in these chapters? Hmm. Um, just because like Harry is a bit of a hybrid, Hermione we know is a hybrid, Hagrid is a hybrid. We've talked about that. Like I know it might simply be like a fault of the of 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 plotting that no, they, no, they have no. too many characters, but but it maybe the characters who are there are the ones who are most stuck in between something. Um, just to throw that out there, yeah. Ron Ron really seems like he's quite neatly situated within the Wizarding World. I mean, he knows all about the 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 dragons, and of course there are of course there are native dragons in Britain, and like yeah. Um, yeah. The others are, for one reason or another, they don't they don't fit in, in either place they seem to be from. Um, that's maybe something to think about. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Well. All right. I guess the magic the magic continues and concludes, and then we'll begin again next time. Yeah. Right on. Well, till then. Till then. All right. Take it easy, fellas.